Well, despite the fact that um, this story is only found in Luke, the pericope or passage that is our text tonight is very, very well known. Um, it's, it's well known to young and old alike. What isn't as well known is the context. Not many, uh, really, we, we take this story many times and we pull it out and we forget uh, what comes before uh, this story and really what comes ahead, but particularly what comes before. You see, for those of you that have been with us, you know that this story uh, is, is the last of a series of, um, that has been answering three questions. It's been answering, or this series of stories have been answering the question, will those who are saved be few? They've been answering the question, when will the kingdom come? And they've been answering, who can be saved? But it's also a concluding passage in a series of passages that have described what took place as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. So in some ways, it's a significant transition from what has come before. Uh, from this point forward, Jesus will no longer be on the way to Jerusalem. Beginning next week, he will be near Jerusalem, he will be going up to Jerusalem, he will be drawing near to Jerusalem, and he will be entering into Jerusalem. And it's also somewhat of a summary passage but not just a summary of what's happened since chapter 13 of verse 51, when he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's really a summary of everything that's happened since back in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when he said he had come to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And even before that, since chapter 1, verse 26, when Gabriel announced to Mary that she was going to have Jesus, the Son of God. So it's a passage in which we see him actually fulfilling his purpose for which he, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the much-anticipated, long-awaited Messiah, had come, which was to save and see, or seek, excuse me, seek and save the lost. And I've broken our passage down only into two headings tonight. We want to look at the story, of course. Um, we're going to see in this story two seekers. Uh, one is Zacchaeus, who was lost and then is found. And the other seeker is the Lord Jesus, who again um, sought him out and saved him. The second point we're going to look at is the application of the story in which we're going to see that Jesus continues to do what he has always done because his purpose has not changed at all. He continues to seek and save the lost. And my desire is tonight, tonight, I want you to know that my desire is the same desire that Luke had when he included this story where he included it. In verse 2, he begins to tell this account or tell this story or this encounter with the words, and behold. And that word means to note or to pay attention to or to look to. And in this case, Luke wants us to note, pay attention, and look to Jesus. 
because he is the central figure. He is the focus of. He is, he is the one that this story is about. Yes, Zacchaeus is a part of the story. We can't, we can't deny that. But, but Jesus is the central figure. And so I'd ask that we would now pray and ask the Lord that we might, in fact, behold him. Let's do that now. Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? We'd ask that you would grant all of us spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. Would you in these moments awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us? And as we always ask, would you then refresh us and encourage us and comfort us? This evening I am once again weak and needy for this task to which you've called me. So I ask that you would graciously equip me for it. Would you fill me with your spirit that we might all behold Jesus. It's for his sake and for the sake of his church I pray these things. Amen. Well, the song is accurate. Boys and girls, the song is accurate. Right? We, we think of Zacchaeus, and of course, we think of the fact that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I wish I had a Scottish accent, but I don't. A wee little man was he. And that simply means that he was small. Luke describes him as small in stature. Which means basically that he wasn't very tall. But despite of his height, he was not short on money because Luke also describes him as being very rich. But like most tax collectors at the time, he didn't gain his wealth uh, in a legitimate way. He gained his wealth at the expense of others. And he wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief of tax collectors. So he was a mid-level manager who had other tax collectors below him and he was not which means that he was not simply skimming off the top of his uh, or of those who walked through his booth at this very lucrative uh, on this very lucrative trade route in Jericho. He was also skimming a um, skimming off the top of those tax collectors beneath him. And he, like the tax collector that we saw back in chapter 18, and just like Levi that, that uh, Jesus called as his disciple back in chapter 5, uh, they all would have been considered extortionists or criminals. You heard me describe uh, he, the, the last tax collector in chapter 18 as one who was disreputable because he would have been considered a traitor because he would have sold his soul to Rome for the sake of money. This man particularly would have been considered a mob underboss or what is called a mob capo because of where he was positioned. But no matter where he was in that pecking order, he was moral, he was immoral, unethical, but he wasn't hurting for friends because he ran around in a circle of similar people. So he had plenty of company. And at some point, and we're not, we don't know when, but Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. And we don't know what he exactly had heard about Jesus. We don't know how much he had heard about Jesus. But we know he heard something about Jesus because when he hears that Jesus is approaching, 
He has to go and see him for himself. And this is very important because Luke stresses this by repeating this in both verses 3 and 4. He repeats himself for effect. He wanted to see Jesus. He was seeking Jesus for himself. He wanted to see him. And he wanted to see him so much that he was willing to climb a tree to do so. And this was, of course, due to his height because he wasn't very tall. But more importantly, I think it was due to the fact that the the crowd was in his way. And they weren't simply failing to notice that he wasn't tall and, and he was unable to get close enough to look. I believe it was due to the fact that they were specifically and purposefully keeping him from it. In their minds, he was... Well, he was, people of his kind didn't deserve to see Jesus. He wasn't one of the oppressed. He wasn't one of the disadvantaged. He wasn't one of those hurting. He wasn't one of those who was in pain. So he wasn't one of those that Jesus had come to deliver in their minds. He was just the opposite. He was the oppressor. He was the the one who was taking advantage. He wasn't the poor. He was the wealthy. He was the one causing the pain. And so what business, again, in their minds, what business would Jesus have with him, with the likes of him, And even if Jesus would say anything to him or acknowledge him, he wouldn't have anything good to say anyway. But really, in their minds, Jesus was just going to pass him by anyway, so why let him up front? Why give him a position where he could be seen and he could see? But something, what they didn't recognize, what they didn't realize is that there was something different about Zacchaeus on this day. He looked the same on the outside, but something was different on this particular day. If anyone had had been paying attention, they would know that this was very out of the ordinary because something caused him to throw, throw aside all discretion. He was gonna, he he hiked up his tunic and began to run. And not only did he run, he climbed up into a tree. He was doing everything that would have been considered socially undignified. But due to the obstacles placed in front of him by the crowd, this apparently, based on his actions, was the only hope he believed he had. And what's interesting, as a side note, when I was talking about context, this is the third of three out of four straight stories here at the end. You'll remember uh, from verses or from chapters 18 and 19, this is the third of three uh, individuals or groups who had external obstacles to get to Jesus. We saw the children were hindered in verse 15 of chapter 18. We saw the blind beggar was hindered in verse 39 of chapter 18. And now Zacchaeus here in verse 3 of chapter 19 is hindered as well. The only one of the four that wasn't hindered externally was the rich ruler. And he was hindered internally. And what's interesting about these four stories is those three that were hindered externally 
all eventually came to Jesus. But the one that was hindered internally did not. Again, just a side note as we look ahead into this story. Anyway, something was going on inside Zacchaeus. So much so that he was seeking to see who Jesus was and again was willing to do whatever he needed to do to make that happen. Just like the beggar who wasn't going to allow the crowd to get in his way. Zacchaeus was not going to be denied this day. And in verse 5, we see his tree climbing pay off. Luke says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And this wouldn't have been a very big deal, really, except for a couple of things. First, Zacchaeus probably wasn't the only one up in the tree or in the trees. There were probably several others. There may have been children or teenagers, but there would have been others scattered in the trees trying to see, so he isn't alone. And second, due to the structure and leafing of the tree, he would have been difficult to see, particularly if he didn't want to be seen, which I have a feeling he didn't. So the fact that Jesus, when he arrives, looks up, And then, of all things, calls Zacchaeus by name, we know that something's up. Something's happening. Zacchaeus isn't the only seeker of the story. He was seeking Jesus, there's no doubt. But more importantly, Jesus was seeking him. And notice what Jesus says when he gets there. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Daryl Bach notes that Luke describes this really as a divine necessity. In other words, this is all a part of that divine plan that we talked about last week. Jesus is making this journey to Jerusalem to carry out the predetermined plan of God. And so even this is a part of that predetermined plan. And and so this is meant to have an impact on Zacchaeus personally, yes, but it's it's also important to know that there is that he is, Jesus is putting on his or his purpose and mission on display. For not only Zacchaeus, but those who are watching. And ultimately, he's putting it on display for Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, and for us as well, who are reading it tonight. And notice that what Zacchaeus did when Jesus says this to him, what did he do? He hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. You hear the language from last week, he received him. And we can't overestimate the significance of this encounter between the two of them. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And he, again, was willing to do whatever he needed to do to, to do that. But he got more than he anticipated. Right? He, instead of just seeing Jesus, the Messiah himself invites himself over to dinner. And of course, by inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, he communicates that he's accepting, he's accepting Zacchaeus, which of course the crowd doesn't like. 
And Zacchaeus, in turn, accepted Jesus. He was saved. And the obvious and natural question is, Chris, how do you know that? How do we know that Zacchaeus accepted Jesus' message and was saved? Because Luke doesn't, doesn't record Jesus sharing the gospel. Jesus doesn't, or Luke doesn't record Jesus saying anything about sin. How do we know? And that's a great question. And I want to answer in three ways. First, this. If, if you remember from our study, we've got to go back. And if you haven't been with us, I'm sorry, you need to go back and read chapters 9 and 10. But in chapters 9 and 10, if you remember, that if you were here, um, the 12, as the 12 and as the 72 were sent out, Jesus said that there would be those who would hear the good news of the kingdom. And when they heard the good news, they would receive it with faith. And the fruit of their acceptance, you'll remember, if the fruit of the acceptance of that message would be hospitality. And they would invite those of the 12 or of the 72 in. They would, those that received the message in faith would invite the apostles in. And Jesus said that while some would open their homes, some would not. Some doors would be opened and slammed in their face. Some would not be opened at all. And he said that just as the acceptance of the messenger marked the acceptance of the message, the rejection of the messenger marked the rejection of the message, and both the acceptance and rejection of the messenger and the message ultimately pointed to the rejection or acceptance of him. So the fact that Zacchaeus received... Jesus joyfully communicates that he had received both Jesus and his message. Now secondly, notice what Zacchaeus says in verse 8. He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now this is also, this is very interesting as well because not only has Jesus, or not only does Luke not record that Jesus said anything about the gospel or anything about sin, he also doesn't record Jesus saying anything about money. So why would Zacchaeus talking about giving possessions away and giving back way more than he had taken in or defrauded? Others from? Why would he talk about uh, giving and, and restoring far more than, than the law required? Why would, he use the, why would he use the present tense, I give and I restore, rather than say, I will give and I will restore? And the answer to those questions is he was expressing his desire at that moment to to begin giving out of his wealth and restoring that which he defrauded as soon as he possibly could because he knew that what he had done was wrong. Jesus didn't need to mention anything about sin or money because Zacchaeus had already been con convinced of 
or convicted of his sin, which sent him up the tree in the first place. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, what falls out of our hands gives evidence of what has fallen out of our hearts. So we have to remember that the law had been written upon Zacchaeus' heart because Zacchaeus had been created in the image of God. And by the work of the Spirit, Zacchaeus had been awakened and convicted of his breaking of the Eighth Commandment. Which questions 74 and 75 of our Shorter Catechism, in summary, requires us to obtain, they say that we are required to obtain and increase our wealth and the wealth of others justly and legally, and forbids that we do so unjustly or illegally. Again, that's, that's a summary of those two questions. And the evidence of that being the case in Zacchaeus' life was his response to change and make amends for the things that he had done. There was evidence of something going on within him because now he was wanting to do what was required and he was wanting to abstain from that which was forbidden. He wanted to stop gaining his wealth unjustly. He wanted to start giving instead of getting. And third, notice how Jesus responds in verse 9. He says, today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. So if the two arguments before don't cinch it up for us, right here in Jesus' own lips, he says that Zacchaeus was saved that day. Jesus' call to Zacchaeus was a call to repent and believe. It was a call for Zacchaeus to turn from his sin and turn to faith in Christ. And the fruit of his repentance was his desire to make both amends and obey the law of God. And notice something too. Notice that this change is so definitive in Zacchaeus' life that Luke describes him in the beginning of the story as a tax collector... But at the end of the story, Jesus describes Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. Right? It's, a, it's a specific identity change. Zacchaeus was one of the lost sheep of Israel that Jesus, the great shepherd, as a part of his fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, 15, and 16, had come to seek and save. Hear those verses from Ezekiel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And Zacchaeus proved that he was one of those sheep. For in Jesus' own words from John 10, when he heard the great shepherd's voice, who called him by name, what did he do? He responded, and he received eternal life. But make no mistake about it, Zacchaeus proved to be a child of Abraham, not because of his ethnic background, 
but because of his faith. For in the words of Paul in Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And notice too the covenant language. Right, we're Presbyterian. Notice the covenant language. Salvation didn't come just to Zacchaeus that day. Salvation came to the house. Why? Because the promise was for him and his children. So, that's the story. What are the takeaways? I have three. The first two, I'm going to mix it up on you a little bit. The first two are statements. The last one's a question. You've got to wait for the question tonight. So the first statement is this. Jesus continues to seek and save the lost. He continues to this day. And that includes the tall and the short. That includes the rich and the poor. That includes the rich and the, and the wealthy. And brothers and sisters, that includes the oppressed and the oppressor. It includes the disadvantaged and the advantaged. It includes the sick. I've already said that the sick and the healthy. Maybe I didn't. The sick and the healthy. It includes the offended, but it also includes the offender. It includes the upper class, it includes the lower class, it includes men, it includes women, it includes boys and girls, and it includes those from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Jesus Christ seeks sinners. He seeks us all. And while there are sins that, and you've heard me say this Many, many times, while there are sins more heinous than others, there is no sin so small that isn't in need of God's forgiveness, but there is also no sin so great that He cannot forgive. He's indiscriminate in the grace that He offers. And that same grace is offered to us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, salvation is available tonight. It is only available in and through the Lord Jesus. But it is nonetheless available. And it's available to those who will receive Him. To will receive His offer. The offer of the Gospel. Tonight, repent of your sin and turn to faith in Him. He alone can and will save you. He alone can and wash away your sin. He alone can reconcile you to God. Secondly, Jesus continues to take initiative in seeking and saving the lost. He not only continues to seek and save, He continues to take the initiative. And He does so by His Spirit who calls sinners to repent and to turn in faith. Theologically, it's, a, it's what we call effectual calling. And in the Shorter Catechism, question 31, it defines effectual calling this way. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery 
enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. God calls people by His Spirit to do what we cannot do for ourselves or by ourselves. He convicts us of our sin. He convinces us that we are in fact sinners. He reveals Himself to be the one and only Savior of sinners. And He works within our hearts and He molds us and He makes us and He, he, he makes us ready to receive Him. And in the end, He does everything that needs to be done on our behalf. And this is why the hymn writer Gene Ingelow wrote these words that we often sing here. We sing, I sought the Lord, but afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, Him who was seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. And then lastly is the question. Well, let me go back first. There, there, are, several implica- there, there are several implications to this second. Um, the fact that he, is, he takes the initiative in, in seeking and saving the lost. But I, I want to mention at least three. The first is this. The doctrine compels us to be a humble and grateful people. As Christians, we have nothing to boast in. In and of ourselves. We weren't better than anybody else. We weren't smarter than anybody else. We weren't more worthy than anybody else. God in His grace and mercy chose us, died for us. He drew us to Himself. Therefore, it is only right that we live lives of humble gratitude before God and before others. Secondly, this doctrine compels us to worship God in spirit and in truth. God alone in spirit and in truth. Our, our salvation is Trinitarian. Right? The Father, uh, those whom the Father has chosen, the Son has purchased, and the Spirit has made alive and applied the work of salvation to their lives. We can only boast in God for our salvation, therefore our worship is only of the Lord God. Our, salva- our, our worship is not man-centered because our, uh, our salvation is not man-centered. And finally, this doctrine compels us to share the gospel, as I've mentioned, indiscriminately. right? Casting that seed indiscriminately because we don't know who the Father has chosen. We do not know who um, those for whom Christ has died and purchased their salvation. We don't know who the Spirit's calling But we know there's a remnant. Christ has not returned because not all of those that He has died for have responded in faith. And so we are to go. We're not to lose heart and we're to continue to pray and to continue to go and to continue to proclaim the gospel to our friends and to our family. Now the last question. Or the last takeaway that is a question. And the question is this, what changes does God want to bring about in our lives and what am- amends do we possibly need to make? What changes does God want to make and what 
or to bring about in us and what, um, what amends do we possibly need to make? True, true, repent, true, rep, true repentance brings forth fruit. When we turn from God and turn, or we turn from sin and turn toward God, we also turn toward godliness and obedience. And so listen to a few examples of potential fruit from Philip Ryken. Where you have been taking what does not belong to you, pay it back with extra. Where you have been lazy, get back to work and serve in the strength of the Lord. Where you've been neglecting your family, reorganize your schedule and spend time doing the things your wife or your husband and your children most need you to do. Where you have been giving in to sexual sin, Protect your purity by making a commitment to chastity. Where you've been living selfishly, learn to serve. Where you've been tearing people down, build them up. Where you've been angry with people or bitter against God, offer forgiveness and praise. And then, of course, we could all add to that list, could we not? But as we add to it, as we think about that, as we leave from here and we consider this and we talk about it on the way home and as we talk talk about it around the dinner table, remember that regardless, regardless of what you might add to the list, they are all things that we do not do because we cannot do them on our own, or in our own power, simply with a little bit of resolve and determination. We can only find the power and the grace to repent and to live lives of obedience by beholding Jesus and His cross. It is only through the gospel, trusting that he stood in our place as the substitutionary sacrifice to pay our debt that we owed. It's only as we behold him who redeemed us and set us free from the bondage of our sin. It is only as we behold his blood that washed away the guilt and shame of our sin. as we behold Him through whom we have our forgiveness. It's through Him who lived perfectly and well, a life of perfect obedience. Again, for us, that's been credited to us. And that's the only reason that we are now holy and blameless before Him. We've been adopted into the family of God. And are his children. And it is by his grace and enabling power of the Spirit that we are able to live lives worthy of our calling. Brothers and sisters, let's put it this way may we behold Jesus. 
May we behold him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Would you help us to lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives? May the word preached and the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.